You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. On this episode, I bring you Dr. Eileen Natuzzi. Dr. Natuzzi and I met early on in the pandemic via social media, and she has been an amazing resource in how the data is playing out. It doesn't actually add up with what you're being told. Dr. Natuzzi is a retired acute care trauma surgeon. She holds a master's in public health. She's been a consultant in the past with the World Health Organization, and she held a public health COVID response position earlier on in the pandemic. If you think that the numbers aren't adding up, if the mainstream media, the powers that be, public health is feeding you information that makes you raise your eyebrow, you're going to love this episode. We break down the data in real time and tell you what it really means. Dr. Natuzzi, I'm so excited to have you here today. I have been wanting to get you on the show for months, and I think we're going to have a wonderful conversation that is hopefully very transparent for the audience. Would you take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure, sure. Um, I am a retired acute care trauma surgeon. Uh, I have a master's in public health. Uh, I've done work in the Western Pacific. I continue to work in the Western, Western Pacific, but I've spent time as a consultant with the WHO on health impacts of climate change in Pacific Island nations. Uh, and then recently I worked with our local Department of Public Health on their COVID response. Yes. And we met actually on Instagram. You have a fantastic account that I'm almost afraid to share because I don't want it to get big because I don't want them to take it away from you. (laughs) Because (laughs) you break down what's going on so well on your post. I, I, I'm interesting in the way that uh, when I feel anxiety, or if I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm not sleeping well, I will go read studies because they calm me. It's a weird mm-hmm. thing my brain does. And I actually go to your Instagram page a lot. And I start reading through what you've posted and sharing because it brings me so much um, comfort in knowing that I'm not crazy and what I've been seeing and thinking and that what I think is happening really is happening. You have done such a nice job breaking down some of the fallacies and um, just kinks in the armor of these supposed studies that have come out around the virus, the vaccine. And you and I have talked a little bit about this. Are you? I don't have a direct question for you, but I was hoping we could just talk on that for a little bit. Sure. There, there's some holes in this, and you point mm-hmm. them out so well. So what? What do you think about the initial early Pfizer and Moderna studies that came out on the vaccine and their safety? Yeah, so um, it's, it's really interesting. So these clinical trials uh, that came out that were used to uh, determine whether an EUA was going to be granted to both Pfizer and Moderna generally tend to be underpowered, although the first clinical trial for Pfizer and Moderna was a reasonably populated trial. Um it's where we get into sort of the trials for kids uh, that we see really bad science. We see really bad designs, and yet the FDA accepts them uh, as reasonable data. Um, As far as safety, uh, I don't really see much information as far as safety is concerned in these studies. I mean, they will report the common side effects that everybody expects. If you get a vaccine, your arm's sore, you might get a little bruise there. Um, But there really isn't 
the the population i think in retrospect wasn't large enough for us to find some of the rare side effects that we are beginning to see in a larger population gillian beret um certainly no myocarditis showed up in any of these these trials um i will tell you that the 6 month follow up for pfizer's clinical trial paper that was published by the new england journal of medicine um is very interesting because their data doesn't add up uh they there's a, there's this new trend that when you're reporting clinical trials you use flow diagrams and the nice thing about a flow diagram is you can look at it it's like an algorithm and you can say okay here's where they got their patient population from here's who was eliminated for whatever reason here's who's gone to get the first shot um here's who left uh after the first shot for whatever reason and then who here's who's got the second shot uh and they don't add up what these two studies are is they are a the same population on a continuum of time which means the numbers in every single category in the 6 month follow up can't be smaller than the numbers in the initial clinical trial and yet i saw that when i started digging into the data um on these in particular on the flow sheets the flow diagrams in the new england journal of medicine so i think there are questions that need to be answered and they and they respond uh, those those um inaccuracies are in adverse events and in people who were deemed ineligible to continue in the study so they're less in the 6 month follow up they shouldn't be they should be more in the 6 month follow up and so it's kind of like a little battle i'm in right now with the new england journal of medicine to get them to fix it uh and they the initial iteration of emails was oh well the numbers were less because there were people who were rolling into the 6 month follow up and that's true um they they were early on enrolled but they weren't in the data for the first study Um so yeah I said yeah yeah sure sure I can see where those new, that number that makes sense but when you look at these different categories as to why somebody was discharged or didn't con- discontinued from the study the numbers don't add up so that's where we are right now um and I'll probably send another email out to the editors later on today and say where are we on this because this is not accurate science this is not integrity in research um the more interesting thing is that the principal authors are gone from Pfizer. They don't work for Pfizer anymore. They've moved off to I guess greener pastures or who knows what. Uh and usually a principal author is somebody that I communicate with a lot if I have a question about one of their papers. There was no reaching anybody. There wasn't the the email accounts didn't exist. Uh and the New England Journal of Medicine was kind enough to at least inform me that those authors were gone and no longer work for Pfizer. Wow. So yeah. interesting. <clears throat> What do you think about the trials on for the children? It, I think they were terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, 3000 kids and you divide them in half, you know, the groups were roughly and I'm talking off the top of my head here, but they're roughly 1500 kids, maybe slightly more than that in each of the groups. Um and that's not enough children to be able to say that these vaccines number 1 really work and number 2 really are safe. 
so underpowered clinical trials seems to be a common theme uh, right now in, in with any of the vaccines uh, that the FDA is evaluating. And a number of us have may have brought this to the FDA's attention, that underpowered is unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, we, we're learning now that, that uh, the, you know, the, the booster trial was, I think, probably the biggest joke of all the trials. Uh, it was an in vitro study only. There was no data on what happened to a person. People got the booster, they had their blood drawn, they looked at what the GMT, how many neutralizing antibodies were made, they threw some of those antibodies in with wild type virus and maybe maybe another Delta or something, tried them out to see does it neutralize that or not. But there was nothing that said what happened to that person. There was nothing that said this person was able to fight off the virus. Now we are seeing what is happening clinically. So, you know, it, it, we, need, we need a paradigm shift in how we're going to grant emergency use authorization or approval for these things because clearly these studies, uh, these clinical trials are not sufficient for giving us answers. Absolutely. <clears throat> or making people feel comfortable. And share with the audience what in vitro means so that they thoroughly understand what you're saying here. Yeah. So I, I'm a simpleton. So I remember that in vitro means in a test tube because vitro has a T Me in too. it. Me too. <laughs> so in, in vitro is a test tube or a Petri dish type of a assay. And so it's done outside the body. In vivo means you're doing it within the organism or the human or the animal. And so you have sort of all of the input from our complex immune systems and everything else. Yes. So they were showing, from what I understand, and you're saying this as well, they showed further neutralizing antibody response that they tested, but we don't actually know, did that protect the patient or the recipient from staying out of hospital? Did it keep them from dying? Do They don't have any of that information. They just know that we have further induction of neutralizing antibodies. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's correct. That's all the booster clinical trial that was submitted to the FDA showed. Yes. Is, yeah, we, we poke somebody, jab somebody, and their neutralizing antibodies are going to go up this much over what they went up in the first first um, dose and the second dose. But it, nothing to the effect of, you know, what, what happens, how effective it is in a human being out and about. Right. And what does that mean for them? <clears throat> Effectiveness and efficacy are different for the audience listening. Efficacy is is a they they used relative risk reduction, didn't they, on those first studies, and not absolute risk reduction? I mean, they yes, correct. And but effectiveness is how does it play out in the real world, and and how do we see it once it's right. in use? And so we're seeing effectiveness in real time right now. Uh, I read a I read yeah. a paper. I don't know if I it was one that you and I sent to each other, but I was. I read a paper in the last two days about the new variant and how even with the booster, they that people's antibody response is waning pretty quickly, mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And yeah. so it's almost sounding like, you know, three shots and you're still not going to be terribly protected for very long from this variant and potentially new ones coming forward. 
I think the data that I've seen out of maybe two papers, it puts it at about a month to two months at the most um, before uh, neutralizing antibodies wane. Um, none of these studies, by the way, really look at what are the T cells doing. So what's the cellular side of our immune system doing? Um, you know, we're, we're sort of focused on antibodies only, which I think is kind of dumb. Uh, I mean, we really, it's sort of like having your brain divided in half, this corpus callosum, <laughs> you know, pathology where the right side doesn't know what the left side is doing. Well, let's look at the person, you know, in their totality and their immune system in totality. Uh, do we really need to have a high level of neutralizing antibodies all the time? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Um, but we need to know more about what the T and the B cells are doing mm-hmm. um, in people who have been sick uh, and in people who have gotten vaccinated. Yeah, because that's your memory, right? That's your immune memory. And we sure. are not, I haven't found anything decent on that, looking at that. And I think we've had enough think- time. So I, I, maybe I've missed it. But I don't. I think I found, I did find one paper. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. That's about uh, T and B cell response to Omicron. I'll, I'll I'll shoot you a copy of it once I have a chance to kind of glance at it. Yeah, that would be great. So I can't even tell you whether it was promising or not. Um, but I, you know, it's kind of on my desktop to read. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the original studies that came out when this Mm -hmm. was released. I did a video and it started going viral and I took it down because I felt great danger as it was exploding across the interwebs. I thought this is does not need to be out there. But what what was really eating at me was this idea that they took, let's say, 30,000 people and they divided them in half Mm -hmm. and half got the vaccine and half got saline. Yeah. And then they looked at how many people came. They didn't even test. I don't even think it was via PCR testing positive. It was symptomatic, I believe. And it was 100 something people. And then they decided how many of those people were vaccinated and how many weren't. And then they decided efficacy based on that number, doing some fancy math that you do in studies. And boom, I think think the people who were vaccinated, who came back COVID positive, was like eight people in the Pfizer study mm-hmm. and like 11 in, in the Moderna, or maybe I have those backwards, but it was based on this tiny little amount of people. And then they said, yeah. release it upon the public at large. That was very concerning right. to me. I do not understand studies probably as well as you do, um, just based on how I've heard you explain them. I don't understand how that could even have happened. <laughs> that seems like such a minuscule amount of people. Can can we talk well, about that? <laughs> You could say that about almost anything that has been a, been authorized uh, by the FDA. How is it that that children um, eleven to fifteen uh, have you know got an EUA for the vaccine when there was so much concern about myocarditis? Purely political. All the only thing that has to be said is a statement from the White House saying we we need boosters. We're going to deliver boosters, and the FDA is going to deliver. Because the head of the FDA is a political appointee, the head of the CDC, political appointee. So I think there's a huge element of politics built into this. And I think that there's some some sort of glossing over of the quality of the science uh, in favor of delivering the politics. Um, I think that's part of the reason why Gruber and Krauss, who are at the FDA, resigned and left. Uh, and they've been very vocal since they left in, in speaking out about their concerns about the vaccine. So you know, these early trials, um, 
the uh, the goal of the trial was to test positive if you had symptoms. So there was no PCR testing of everybody on some schedule. It was purely if you have symptoms and you had this list of symptoms, we have you test test using PCR. And I believe they used a central lab. I can't remember off the top of my head. So there's a standardization. So right there, um, you know, all of the stuff that we've been fed about, asymptomatic spread and everything else was not addressed. It was purely if you have symptoms and if you test positive, then you count. Everyone else is background. Uh, and so that's basically, you know, how many people within the vaccine group had minimal symptoms, uh, but never said anything and didn't test positive. So it only addressed symptomatic disease. There was nothing about, and, and, and testing with PCR might have given us some information about transmission, um, but, you know, that just never happened. Uh, and so it, it's, it makes this, the trial weak uh, and probably not the way I would design it. I would have designed it where everybody's getting PCR testing on a regular basis so you can get an idea of what's happening to the population that you're studying. Uh, and you get an idea that our vaccine, you know, blocks transmission. Let's say we saw no cases of asymptomatic disease or asymptomatic test positive, but that wasn't done. Uh, and the other thing that was done relatively quickly is the control group was was essentially dissolved uh, and became part of the six-month follow-up group or later. Actually, they weren't part of the six-month follow-up group, but they just kind of evaporated. Uh, and so there wasn't a control extending out over time. So again, the design, I think the design of these Studies were left to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it was done in a quick and rapid way. As soon as they hit an efficacy or, or yeah, an efficacy that they were happy with, they pretty much were done. They said, okay, two months, here's our data. Let's get this into the FDA and apply for our EUA. Yep. And of that small group of people that they based e efficacy off of, they only tracked them for two weeks after that that that's when they decided okay this is the 95% efficacy which i thought was i don't know the the numbers really was i thought it was 2 months actually that that they followed during the first clinical trial um that they followed or maybe they followed them only for safety up to 2 months or something like that but I, there was a follow up of about 2 months i think they did but they based the efficacy off of like a 14 day period after they became symptomatic it was that smaller group. I, I can't remember yeah. exactly the details, but it, I just remember the numbers greatly bothering me and me thinking, really, we're going to release this upon humans at large based off of this tiny... Well, and then it, a paper came out later showing absolute risk reduction, which was shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was... It showed that these were not the godsend everybody had made them out to be. And the numbers were pretty minuscule. It kind of gives you an idea of like how many people need to be vaccinated to block one person from getting it. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at those numbers, like 5,000 people need to be vaccinated to block one person, 
Uh, I'm not even sure that that's real right now. It certainly isn't applicable to what's going on with Omicron. No. Um, that kind of goes out the window. So, um, you know, I think that I think that we've seen a lot of playing with numbers, a lot of manipulation with numbers. Um, I'm going to use this, you know, this rate or ratio or percent because all the numbers look better. So we're seeing that in almost all the data coming out out of public health. Yeah, it's messy. This is why I love your Instagram. I love reading through them and you just break it down in such a nice way. You guys, I have a special announcement. I am excited to invite my listeners of the Dr. Tina show to my brand new CBD store. I've got several products inside the store to suit everyone's needs. I looked for years for a supplier that checked off all the boxes on quality, and I am happy to tell you about the products I've finally come up with. I've got two gummy products inside the store. Both are hemp extract CBD phytocannabinoid gummies, one that supports a more calm state with added L-theanine, and another to shield your immune system with ingredients like zinc and vitamin C along with the CBD. I've also got a high-potency, truly full-spectrum hemp extract oil synergized with other naturally occurring phytocannabinoids and MCT oil. This results in fantastic absorption in the gut. This oil contains several naturally occurring cannabinoids and terpenes, terpenes are important, plus an added proprietary blend for a robust profile. It contains less than 0.3% THC, it's extracted from high-quality CO2 extraction process, And it comes in both a straight oil form or a convenient soft gel, which I like to keep in my purse for on the go. I've also got an amazing topical cream that I utilize for pain. I've tried countless pain creams over the years and test drove them all on my mom. And she says this one is her absolute fave. Every product is rigorously tested and comes with a certificate of analysis that you can find on the product page on the website. So head over to drtinahemp.com and use coupon code DRTINASHOW10 for 10% off your first order. That's drtinahemp, all one word, D-R-T-Y-N-A-H-E-M-P.com and use coupon code DRTINASHOW10 for 10% off your first order. I can't wait to hear what you think of them. What do you, okay, so those original studies showed that it could keep people out of hospital and severe disease. I don't think it showed a reduction in death. And I don't, it definitely didn't, we didn't see a lot of great data coming out even moving forward on it stopping transmission. I know that there was like some hope. I I remember seeing a few lines here and there that, oh, Pfizer says it stops transmission. And I'm like, where is that? Where, Where can I find that? Yeah. So my whole thing is that I think that mandates are well, ridiculous and unconstitutional, but they're a moot point because this does not stop transmission. So me getting vaccinated is not actually going to protect anybody else. I understand the whole concept of their goal of herd uh, immunity, where if enough people get vaccinated, I understand how that works. Mm -hmm. But I, at the end of the day, these are leaky vaccines that don't stop transmission. And they're certainly not now. I mean, the, the new variant is, it's not... The, the I don't know if you saw this, or maybe I sent it to you, the CEO of BioNTech, which is the other half of Pfizer, yeah. for the audience listening, mm-hmm. that was a dual conglomeration there of creating that vaccine. BioNTech was the other side. A German immunologist is the CEO. He straight up said that uh, this is not stopping Omicron, and it's not stopping it from, yeah. from being spread, period. Even with boosters, he was like, this isn't going to work. I've seen, I saw an article that got me into a very serious shadow ban on Instagram, where after one of the FDA meetings, 
uh, or CDC, I'm sorry, debriefing, one of the doctors there said, there's no way we're going to hit herd immunity. We should just give up. Like this isn't, this plan is not working. He was quoted in the LA times. I shared that, got into trouble there. What do you say about this? Cause I can't seem to get my medical colleagues to understand this concept that it's just not me being vaccinated is not protecting them. It just protects the end user. Yeah. I mean, I, I write about this on, on uh, Substack. Um, in fact, I've been spending a little more time on Substack than on Instagram these days. Um, we're not going to achieve vaccination-induced herd immunity. We might induce, we might achieve some element of, you know, herd immunity with a combination of natural immunity and vaccination, but um, we're just not going to get there. And so, uh, what I've said repeatedly to people is. The vaccines are not stopping transmission. Let go of that. Um, it is now down to personal choice, personal risk assessment. Uh, and if you are in a high risk group, then you should consider getting vaccinated. If you, you know, it, it's, it's, it's time to do what we had originally talked about doing with vaccines. And that is protect the vulnerable, protect the high risk. Uh, and kind of let everybody else, you know, let everybody else do their, make their choices. So I don't, I, I don't believe in mandates. Um, I certainly don't believe in mandates in the face of what we're seeing with Omicron. Um, and I don't believe in boosters at this point in time either. Uh, if we're going to mandate boosters, and that's come down the pike here in California, all healthcare workers now have to have a booster by February 1st, um, then give us a booster that works. Right now, we're boosting with what I refer to as a legacy vaccine. It's kind of like your old Macintosh computer that the operating system is so old that you can't do anything with it. Right. It's the same thing. These these vaccines are too old. Um, they're two years old, uh, and they're not effective against this new virus that we have. Uh, and so, essentially, if you're if we want to use boosters, use a booster that works. Right. Use a new modern booster. Well, we're building antibodies against a specific strain that's no longer in circulation. It yeah. It it makes none of this makes any sense to me. <laughs> I just. The, the comments that coming are coming out of my co professional colleagues' mouth sometimes, I just, I you know, and you and I talked about this. We are, certainly aren't trying to disparage anyone. We don't want to make anyone feel stupid for any choices they've made. But, like, we, I think as a physician, at the very least, keeping up with current literature is critical in all of this. And so for my physician colleagues to be going around saying, you know, you need to protect your patients, you need to do it for the greater good, I'm like, are y'all not paying attention to what's coming out and what's happening? My dog really wants – she found her tennis ball, and she's decided we should play. So if you hear some little talking in the background, she's sure. – She's giving me some little owls. <laughs> um, I think that I think that if if people are look, I, you know, staying up on the literature on this is a, is a full full time job. Yeah, I mean, right. I spend a lot of time reading different papers. People send me information. People ask me to run some data on this or that, and it's kind of like a full time job. And so, if somebody is actually working full time in their other job doing patient care. Um, it's difficult to stay up. And what they end up doing is getting their sort of distilled down information from 
uh, a source that may not be a reliable source. I mean, just just for example, I did this experiment, read through a couple of New York Times articles, and they have links to whatever point they're making. And so I started clicking on the links. And I'm like, that doesn't take me to an article that explains what they're talking about here. So their links aren't even at, at accurate. And for to me, if you're going to make a point, put a link in that links to, let's say, the paper you're talking mm-hmm. about or the study you're talking about or the interview you're talking about. That's one of the reasons why I like Substack more, because I can link, hyperlink everything that I'm talking about so people can go and look at that. That's the power of, you know, learning and looking at studies. I mean, there was a period of time when Francis Collins, who I think is about to leave the NIH, he would do these, send out these little emails that would be a review of studies. And I I would get them. I sign up for everything. I read basically everything. And I would read his interpretation of a study and be like, okay, let's take a look at the study. And I'd read the study and I'm like, this study doesn't say anything like that at all. How is he drawing this conclusion? So I don't. I believe about a third of what I read, you know, in, in the sort of mainstream media news, kind of digital news and whatnot. Um, and I and I'll go to the the papers or the studies to get to really kind of get the information. And a lot of times you pick up an additional pearl or two. So I think if your listeners take one message home from this is go to the studies. Mm -hmm. Teach yourself to read the studies. I keep saying I'm going to do a sub stack on how to read a study so that you become accustomed to them uh, and see what they say because the interpretation is very different. So, you know, our colleagues who are busy running around working, they're picking this up on the fly, you know, from MedPage or some of these Mm -hmm. other sources. It's true. Uh, and you don't have the luxury of time. You're you're correct. And you do have to dig because if you go to the CDC, the CDC makes it sound like it's all just great and dandy and they link some kind of ridiculous study sometimes through that well, the, that the just supports that, their yes, narrative. They decide what the message is going to be and then they find a study that's going to support that. I mean, the the study that they supported natural their view on natural immunity, um I was not surprised at you know, they wanted to say whether you had a previous infection or not, you needed to be vaccinated. And so they found a study that showed that it was, you know, slightly, you were slightly more likely uh, to prevent uh, serious illness if you got vaccinated on top of your previous uh, infection. You know, it, it's, you know, it's just kind of looking, looking for, looking for something to back back things up. I mean, you could do that in anything. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that we're doing it in science uh, and misinterpreting data and we're using data, we're we're not using data um, is quite disappointing. I think that it's, I think that's fair. I also believe that as a physician, it is our duty, if we're informing our patients, it is our duty to dig a little deeper. And like I said, I, I look at these things when I'm, you know, it's randomly three in the morning and I wake up because of a windstorm or whatnot. I put in Omicron Immunescape. That's all I put into the Google search bar and up comes 
studies, right? Up, up comes preprints and studies. I put in just some basic terms and I find these things. So I do agree that we have the luxury of time. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like this is an important topic and there's a lot of propaganda being thrown out and there's a lot of people eating it up, including health professionals. And that part to me is a little bit inexcusable. I think it's an ethical issue to be telling your patients to take the vaccine to protect grandma when it doesn't protect grandma. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that you have to keep in mind, Tina, is that um, um, our peers, uh, depending upon how they work and where they work, are subject to a lot of top down Mm -hmm. regulation. Uh, And, you know, if you're terrified that you're going to lose your job, uh, you're going to be silent. Uh, And there's been a lot of overreach, regulatory overreach. uh, And, you know, people getting letters from the medical board and and nonsense like that. I speak freely because I have nothing to lose anymore. I'm not working. You take my license away, I don't care. I'm not working. The only virus I come in direct contact with is mosaic, you know, tomato mosaic virus in my garden. (laughs) So, you know, I can, you, you and I can kind of speak more freely. What's the worst that can happen is I could have my Instagram account taken down and like, who cares? Yeah. The beauty of Substack is Substack actually is free. It's free speech. I mean, it really, truly is free speech. Uh, and I love all the different voices and writing that I see on Substack. Um, and, you know, you can comment. It's great for comments. And like I said, you can put your hyperlinks in. So you're really diving deep into teaching and sharing and you know, just making points and whatnot. So I think, you know, we need to, uh, I don't, I don't fault my fellow physicians um, for being silent because I think some of them are terrified they could lose their job. I agree. But I will say, I see on occasion in some discussions on MedPage and whatnot, the people pushing back and saying, this is stupid. You know, I do see those conversations and I see them a little bit more. I have them with friends of mine who are still working clinically, one of whom was a really big vaccine advocate early on. And she said, I'm not getting boosted. I've decided not to get boosted. And I said, I wouldn't get boosted until, you know, we see what comes of this. It's a little it's a little bit premature to be running out and vaccinating people with the same old tired legacy vaccine, um, boosting them with that uh, when we've got a different player on the field. Agreed. Yeah, I I don't fault them uh, until they attack me. (laughs) They make it personal. And then that's not nice. Yeah. And then I'm like, I don't know if you guys are keeping up with it. Let's talk about natural immunity and if, if you want to, and some of the studies that have come out around that showing robust antibody response and memory mm. T cells and B cells mm. to natural immunity. And then this narrative, which I, I don't disbelieve, I think it's feasible that if you do get vaccinated on top of having a prior infection, you kind of have the super immunity, which is like their new sales pitch. I, I, I love how they take, I love when the narrative takes what we've been saying and calls it conspiracy. And then months later, it, yeah, it, yeah. it's their new propaganda tagline. Yeah. It's very interesting. Anyway, that's my side note. But this natural immunity thing that people seem to, I, I literally had a epidemiologist come at me on Instagram recently and tell me natural immunity doesn't exist. 
And I just, I don't even know. It's like arguing with a flat earther. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> when, you say, well, when you say natural immunity, because uh, let me make sure we're clear with the terms. Uh, when I say natural immunity, I'm referring to somebody who's had prior infection and now has natural immunity to the bug. That very much exists. Yes. That, that, that's not, you know, that's not misinformation. Yeah. People do get natural immunity and they do get antibodies in particular with COVID to not only the S protein and then what is it, RMD and the nucleocapsid. I mean, there's a plethora of antibodies in a broader sort of a, a response. Um, you know, I think that what, what I found really interesting is that when Omicron kind of broke, the first study that came out was one saying natural immunity is being evaded by Omicron. It's like, oh, okay, well, how about the vaccine immunity? So the first study was going after natural immunity. And then, and it may be that was because in South Africa, what did they have a vaccination rate of less than 40%. So they have more people who have natural immunity. Um, so it's it's very interesting. No, natural immunity to a prior infection really exists. That is a known fact. And it's robust and diverse in many cases. Yes. And yeah. and I always explain it sort of like a band. You get all the band members, all the instruments. You get this be- yeah. beautiful orchestration that comes back around. Sure. How long does that last? We don't know. That's why we get the cold over again at some point in our life. But I found it interesting. I think I sent that to you this morning that having antibodies and an immune response to Omicron actually can be protective against Delta, which is exactly how this is supposed to happen, right? In a biological system, the new variant, because it's more transmissible, should eventually overtake prior variants as far as evolution is concerned. And you, it's our friend, I I think of Omicron as our friend at this point, you you get it, it's milder, it's for, for healthy people, it should be milder, not to say that it isn't impacting some still more severely. And then you build an antibody response. And then if, you know, old baddie comes knocking back around, you got them because you got an antibody, you've got some kind of whatever robust T cell B cell response. And, but we, you know, that's not going to be on the evening news. Now, I always think of it, I actually refer to Omicron as our exit ramp from the pandemic. Yes. Um, because it is, you know, overall, I mean, the data is becoming really clear. Uh, and I think it's time to stop saying, um, well, it might be uh, milder, but we're not sure yet. I, I've read paper after paper after paper. I just finished reading a paper out of South Africa that was purely a clinical paper and looked at, you know, who was hospitalized during the Omicron outbreak. Um, and were they hospitalized with COVID or were they hospitalized for COVID? Did they have pneumonia? Did they require oxygen? And clearly, there is a huge difference between the Delta variant and what was circulating before Omicron and the clinical impact that Omicron is creating now. Uh, and I think we need to embrace that. I think we, but that doesn't get more vaccines in the arms of people. And at what point do we say we don't need more vaccines? At one point do we say we need to, now we need to surround the vulnerable, make sure the vulnerable are taken care of. At what point do we start to adopt the 
Great Barrington Declaration, which, by the way, was alluded to um, in one discussion by the CDC. And I thought, isn't that interesting? They totally ripped into that, the Great Barrington Declaration, but now we're beginning to embrace it. Um, I wrote a piece, and, I, and it's on the Brownstone Institutes, which is the Great Barrington Declaration people. Uh, and in that, I, I said, there is no misinformation. We are all learning right now about a virus that is new. Uh, and so nobody's an expert. You know, and, and that's, you know, what, what, makes, what makes Dr. Fauci an expert? What makes Dr. Walensky an expert? Their position. It's purely their position. But are they reading the studies that we are reading are they interpreting those studies from a neutral standpoint or do they read them with an agenda? Uh, and are they open to seeing things as not being, you know, conspiracy theories anymore or misinformation or disinformation? So, yeah, I love it when, when something that is misinformation then all of a sudden becomes fact, Oh, goodness. Yeah, the state of Washington just announced the Department of Health, who actually oversees the naturopathic medical licenses in that state, came out recently and said that anybody, any health practitioner spreading misinformation is up for losing their license. And my question is, what is correct information? What is misinformation? What It depends on the week, right? It depends on who's saying it. And yeah. What headlines are coming out? It's, it's, it's bath. The whole, the whole thing isn't, I feel like, I feel like I'm walking around in an insane world where it's, a, it's a little bit insane. The thing is, if you're going to make a point, back it with data, because then you can turn around and say, how can you say this is misinformation? Here's this publication in Lancet or wherever. Um, if you make a point that is, you know, a little bit crazy, back it with something, uh, then you can defend yourself. Uh, and I understand, you know, there, I know, I get this sense that there are people who are beginning to feel more and more desperate, especially people who feel like the walls are caving in on them. You know, the mandates are coming down and their liberties are being attacked and everything else. And so there's a bit of lashing out, but do that lashing out intelligently and back what you say with data from reliable sources, too. That's the other thing. I don't see the New York Times as a reliable source. They are clearly, you know, in the, in the group speak of the mainstream media that talks about mainstream science. I, mean, I love all these new terms that have come out of this pandemic, mainstream science. So, you know, <laughs> as opposed to actual science. <laughs> as opposed to actual science, yeah, mainstream science. So there's you know, the non-mainstream people and then there's the mainstream people. I consider myself non-mainstream then because I'm actually reading the studies. Yeah. I'm not reading the New York Times. I'm not listening to CNN. I don't listen to Fox. I just don't. We don't listen to We haven't had the TV on for news and I can't remember how long oh. in our household. Oh, it's terrible. I, yeah. I stumbled across uh, just randomly at my mother-in-law's house and it was on and I was like, what is this garbage? I mean, it was just so much fear mongering and yeah. people getting their dopamine hits every night, having that fear narrative drilled into that amygdala where they just keep getting it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's programming. If, I just feel like if people can't see it right now for what it is, even the hardcore vaccine fans, you know, the people who are really bought into this whole thing working, 
if they can't see it right now, I, I, I don't know what to tell them. Because you're right. I think the jig is up. This this Omicron situation, to me, set, signals the end of the pandemic. And yeah. we're now endemic. This is reality. This is the world. Why are we afraid of a, a sometimes cold virus? Viruses that go around are rough. I've had some rough goes. I've I've mm-hmm. I've had them trickle into pneumonia. I've seen them almost kill family members. Um, but it's something we seem to forget that flus and vir- you know colds have been killing people for ever. Yeah. And suddenly we're it's this weird sort of zero COVID policy that Australia and New Zealand has adapted, and then it feels like they're doing some version of it here, but they're not doing it very well. And it's just zero COVID. That's just not re. It's not realistic. Yeah, we're, not gonna, we're never going to hit zero COVID. I mean, it's so crazy to think that this virus is going to go away. It might sort of evaporate on its own at some point. And we certainly have seen some pretty impressive peaks and then, you know, valleys where the, where the virus, I don't know, goes on vacation or something. And we have really low rates of infection. I mean, what we saw in, was it May and June? Um, April, May, and June, everybody's, oh, the vaccines are working so well. Look at this. And I was sitting there saying, nope, 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 nope. When the hot weather comes and people go indoors to the air conditioning, we might see a little change, you know, and and sure enough, we did. Uh, And that's when we saw Delta. And we saw that huge spike from Delta. And then everyone's like, oh, you know, Delta's gone now. We have our vaccines and we're boosting. It's going to be over. And I said, nope, nope, nope. The winter is coming. It's going to be a dark winter. Yeah. We will have cases. But the problem is, let's get rid of the cases. Let's stop counting oh, cases. Oh, yes. Let's stop with all this nonsense testing. What do you make of this new... The, I mean, the CDC this week, I feel like I'm watching a game show. I feel like there's some yeah. like writers in the back writing funny SNL scripts. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Actually, you know, they, they, this new policy on the length of time that you quarantine or isolate, it's not new. When I was working for the county, if we had an essential healthcare worker... Who tested positive or was exposed, was quarantined, we could give them a shortened period provided their employer could tick off certain boxes like that person could have um, a, a private place to sit and do their work. Um, they wore a mask or were allowed to leave as soon as they got symptoms. There were certain things that could be ticked off. And it's sort of kind of the same thing that the CDC is releasing now. Now, it, again, it's a decision that's made out of convenience. And the convenience is everybody's terrified that the hospitals are going to be overrun. We're not seeing it in the UK. We're not seeing it in South Africa. We're not seeing it in Denmark. Are we that different? I know we're metabolically not very healthy here in this country, but compared to the UK, yeah, um, we're, we're really not that different. So I think we just need to sort of you know, fine, put these kind of kooky, you know, modifications, which we used, you know, we used those a year ago, um, put them in place. Um, but it's really being done to keep the meat on the floor working. Uh, and the boosters for healthcare workers, more meat on the floor working. And this is one of the problems with, you know, being employed within a healthcare system is, yeah, you got to do what your boss tells you. Um, I never was employed during my entire time that I worked in healthcare. I was always my own boss, so I could make my own decisions. 
Um, but it's, you know, consolidation and everything else in the way the healthcare system has changed. People lose their ability to make decisions. Uh, and, you know, the healthcare worker mandates now for boosters, you know, they have to take it. And they're taking, they're taking it because they need them at work. So no longer heroes, just meet on the floor. Yep. Yeah. It's, Get in there and work. Oh, I, nothing gets me more upset than that. Conver- oh, well, aside from the fact that we're injecting children, those two things are, they set me off. Well, I think we, again, I think that we just need to, I have had this conversation with a friend of mine who's an immunologist, virologist. Um, and I've said, is we really need to drop the legacy vaccines now. And, and you know, the these mRNA vaccines were sold to us as technology that could be rapidly turned over and adaptable. What's rapid? They're talking about something in March. Right. That's not rapid to me. Um, that, you know, if this is made on a computer and then you plug it in and you produce it, let then produce a vaccine to the Omicron variant uh, that at least brings us two years forward uh, and give it to those who are most vulnerable, Mm -hmm. those who are at higher risk. I'm not sure we're going to see that many people who are vulnerable, though, with what I'm reading about the clinical outcomes from Omicron. So, you know, I think we're at an inflection point right now uh, in the whole pandemic. And if we don't follow data that we're getting, I think we're going to create more problems for ourselves. I think so too. I think we're going to, and I've been reading a lot about just that we're at a point in our Republic where, and even before COVID hit where a civil war is not entirely out of the question, you know, just the way we've been headed. And I think people are fed up and they're, they're fed up with not getting straight answers and then things changing. PCR testing being another one. Suddenly we're not doing the PCR test anymore because it's inaccurate. And oh, by the way, it can shed, you can be shedding virus for 90 days, which I've been trying to tell people like, you know, people will message me and say, I had COVID, I was sick, I had a positive PCR, I took a test two months later, I was positive, but I wasn't sick. What does that mean? Did I get COVID again? I'm like, no, you're just shedding virus or particulate of, you know, done virus, it's coming up and out of you. And it will continue to for several months. And so you could potentially test positive on PCR again. And now we're doing away with that. And so I just feel like the The things that we've been trying to call attention to that were called conspiracies, that were called this and that. And, you know, I think people don't understand, too, that science isn't black and white. There's shades of gray. So there's not they want these hard and fast that the public wants this hard and fast. They want it from me. They get mad at me when I won't give it to them because I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Biology doesn't Mm -hmm. work that way, (laughs) you know. And I I think that to just not be uh, if people are not seeing through sort of I don't want to use the word corruption, but it, it feels that way. If people aren't seeing through the nonsense they've been fed to sort of placate them along the way of this. That's what gets me mm-hmm. is we, they, we've treated the general public as if they were so stupid and never once mentioning actual health building strategies at yeah. all. That's what that's what gets me. But that's my tirade. Oh, no, that's what blows me away, too. So, you know, we're two years into this and we could have had these public service announcements about, you know, losing weight and eating healthy. Um, but we didn't. Uh, we sort of all waited for the vaccine. We waited almost a year for the vaccine. Uh, And now that the vaccines are here, um, 
Yeah, we're not seeing them. We're not seeing the hospitalizations. We're seeing a diminution in the deaths. But the total number of deaths this year of the vaccine uh, is the same as what we saw the first year. Yep. I look at that and I look at sort of, you know, I, I look at like the deaths, the day-to-day deaths in in the UK and other countries. And I say, why is it that our daily deaths are so much higher than other countries? Why is it that we maintain these high numbers of deaths when other countries don't? You know, they may have 20, 80 deaths in a day and we're running a thousand. And I, I get it that we are a larger country and whatnot. And certainly if you normalize that to per million, we still run higher numbers. Why is that? Are we so unhealthy or are we recording the deaths in a, an inaccurate way? So, and I can tell you, when I worked for the county, I had two patients who died. Uh, and I received their death certificates and I received, and I was told to record in the electronic record that they died. Uh, and this was a COVID electronic record. And I said, I'm not going to record they died because they didn't die from COVID. One had lung cancer uh, and the other one had um, advanced dementia. Uh, And he was tested just before he died because his wife who had COVID visited him. One, why was he tested? Uh, And two, he didn't die from COVID. He died with COVID, but not from COVID. Uh, And I was told by my supervisor, you just... Just tick the boxes. And so I actually wrote in the notes section, this person did not die from COVID. And I wrote all the details, you know, that he was tested because of his exposure to, you know, by his wife and blah, 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 and this and that. So we know that some of the data, um, just like some of the data on kids being hospitalized right now, is kids being hospitalized for other reasons who get tested because everybody who sets their foot in the door of the hospital is tested these days. So that's artificial. Those numbers are artificial. Uh, and either we need to decide we're going to toss out the with COVID and only report the from COVIDs, uh, or we're going to create that second classification. But I think we need to be more accurate. So I think that our high death rates that we see in the United States is partially due to how we handle the data. Yep, it's the with COVID and not of COVID phenomenon. And it's been going on the entire time. And yeah. it doesn't matter how many times I've, I try to tell people, they just look at me blankly. They, they don't, it's like they want to believe the song they're being sung. And I you, you can put data in front of them from data from sources they trust, like the CDC, and they'll say, no, you you made that graph. You cre- I mean, there's just such a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. I look, you know, I, when I was doing my master's in public health, I had a lot of respect for the CDC and I lot of, had a lot of respect for the WHO. Uh, a lot of that I've lost, uh, not so much for the WHO, because I think they've been pretty bold in some of their statements they've been making lately. Um, but the CDC is in peril, uh, and that's going to take public health in the United States in peril as well, too. Uh, and so I think there'll be a large portion of us that will say, we need to change this, we need to fix this, we need to rebuild trust. I think there are people who blindly trust in these agencies mm-hmm for fear that 
if they don't trust them, the sky's going to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't and I'm not criticizing those people. That is that's who they are. Uh, but for those of us who see through the the sort of fallacy and the lack of data, it's perfectly reasonable for us to call them out on it uh, and to say that's not what this data says. This data says something different. You know, I love when people say I'm following the science, and they're usually <laughs> people that aren't involved in science at all. And my response is always, I don't follow the science. I follow the data. Because the science can be political science. It could be anything. Um, It's an interpretation. Um, Follow the data. Read the studies. Look at, decide this is a shitty study and just throw it out and not not read it. Um, But that's what we have to, you know, we have to rebuild. We're going to have a lot of rebuilding to do after this. Uh, And... We need to clear out some of the folks that are in charge right now and bring in a new generation. Uh, I think Dr. Fauci needs to retire. Um, Dr. Uh, what's his name? Collins. He's retiring. Um, I actually, I actually like Rochelle Walensky. There are people who are, you know, repelled by or whatever, but she's been honest. If you think about it. She was the first person to say we're seeing transmission yes. with the vaccines based on the barnstorm outbreak. And she caught a load of crap for saying that. I mean, and she lives under the long shadow of Dr. Fauci. And she needs to be allowed to speak. Uh, and we need to allow her to, you know, synthesize information and see who she is as a leader. So I actually have more respect for her than anybody else who's in sort of a lead position right now. I felt like I was watching the Super Bowl when she said that. I just wanted to scream and <laughs> throw yeah. my arms up yeah. in joy. I was like, thank you for speaking some truth. Yeah. What what happened? Right. And I think she sort of on a certain level continues to speak the truth. But she's under, a, you know, she's under pressure to say what needs to be said, mm-hmm. uh, what they want her to say. Again, she's a political appointee. Mm-hmm. So can she really, you know, I don't think she wanted boosters for everyone. Uh, I think she wanted boosters for high risk. Uh, and a, I, but I think that politically she was told, you know, you need to broaden this out. So the booster hearings for the FDA, they were, I thought, found those incredibly interesting. And and a friend of mine is on the VRB on that that committee. Uh, And she had emailed me and said, what do you think of the data? She'd emailed a number of us to ask our opinion on the, the, the booster trial data. And I said, it doesn't show safety and it doesn't show efficacy. It's just a science experiment. Um, And I wouldn't, and I wouldn't, I would vote no. And they all voted no initially to the first question. Does the data, booster data, show safety and efficacy? And everybody said no. Uh, and, and that was really interesting. And it forced Dr. Marks to ask a second question. The second question was, should boosters be made available to high-risk people or certain you know, populations based on the data? Uh, and they responded yes to that. They should have done the same thing with the kids. Yes. Uh, that was really a mistake. They should have forced for a second question because the, the question of the data isn't binary. There's that gray in between. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the whole 
boost your vote, um, I just found incredibly interesting to listen to. And then the discussion about children, vaccinating children, was very interesting because they really didn't want to, you know, pay, give, give an EUA. And the biggest concern was we don't want it mandated. We want it available for parents who want it, but we don't want it mandated. They should have said no on the first vote, just like they did on the booster thing, and then go ahead and force the second question. That second question is a little more refined uh, towards what their discussion is. And here we are. We are we are in the thick of it, and that's the that's the concerning part. I want to I want to touch on a few more things before we close out that you and I had been talking sure. about, which leads us right into it, which is. Concern. I get asked a lot about uh, ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement, yeah. immune priming, pathogenic priming, all of the things. Can you talk about what you are seeing with this, and and the, what's the data showing? Yeah, I don't. I don't haven't really found any evidence of uh, antibody-dependent enhancement. To be honest with you, I mean, we would really see increasingly sicker and sicker people. Um, certainly the breakthrough infections, um, some are ending up in the hospital. I mean, I run the numbers. I actually go into each of the independent state websites and, and if I can find them, I find the raw numbers and I run the data. Um, California has, I think the percent of hospitalized breakthrough infections are around close to 30%, um, 25 to 30%. The total number of breakthrough cases around 35%. Um, so that we're not seeing a whole lot of really serious, um, uh, serious breakthrough infections. Uh, yeah, the people are dying, but I mean, most of the death rates and breakthroughs are around fifteen to twenty percent. They're not terribly high, and if you think about it, you know who who's gotten vaccinated? Some pretty fragile people mm-hmm. in nursing homes and whatnot. So we'd expect to see uh, some deaths. Um, I do think that we are setting ourselves, potentially setting ourselves up for um, original antigenic sin. sin. And that, it's taken me a while to sort of really get that concept down. But it's essentially virus number one, and we'll call that, for lack of any other term, the original coronavirus. Uh, A vaccine is made to it, against it, and everybody's vaccinated to it. Uh, And then along comes a very different virus like Omicron, and that's sort of, you know, virus number two. Uh, And you boost with the same original vaccine. Uh, And Omicron infection then is recognized as the original virus. The antibodies come in, explode, but they don't kill the Omicron virus. And so the Omicron virus just causes infection. People, it's it's a difficult concept, I think, to prove. Um, and I think that it would take, you know, sort of a, a really kind of a, a detailed study that would be done on, on, you know, serial serum samples from people who get breakthrough infections to get an idea of what's happening. But essentially, you train the immune system to respond to virus one, so it's really good at responding to virus one. But when virus two comes along, it's sort of kind of like meh and doesn't really, doesn't kill it. Uh, it mounts an antibody response, but doesn't kill it. Some people think that uh, the antibodies that are released in response to, because it's trained to see virus one, may help Omicron internalize 
and lead to ADE, but I don't think we're seeing anything like that at this point in time yet. Um, I did write to, I wrote to one of the authors of a review paper about original antigenic sin, because I was kind of, you know, I just want to say, hey, you, you, you know, your paper was a great paper. Do you think that this is going on right now? Uh, and I got kind of like a little blown off response of, that's not the issue now. And that was about it. <laughs> and, you know, no ex- explanation or anything like that. So I'm like, I guess he doesn't want to talk about it. Maybe he's getting hit, you know, from numerous emails from people about, you know, original antigenics and who knows. I, but I, think I that's love that really, you. I love that you come after him though, and that you hold him accountable. <laughs> well, I basically, I mean, I, I, I'm very polite. Let me tell you, my friends say, "Oh, you're very measured in how you talk to people and stuff like that." I don't want to be, I don't want to be abusive to anybody. Um, it's just, I, I, if you are the contact person on a paper, your email's there for a reason. Yeah. And so I ask a question. I pose a question. I've gotten to know a number of authors fairly well from doing that. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's a valuable thing to do. Unfortunately, I didn't really get any information that was helpful in in understanding whether we are at risk for this or not. But both Krauss and Gruber, who left the FDA, said they felt that boosting everybody puts puts the population at risk, potential risk for original antigenic sin. And it could just complete, you know, non-response to Omicron, which may very well be what we're seeing. Well, we did have that paper that we were sharing back and forth that just came out. Well, it's a preprint, I think, uh, showing immune escape with Omicron. And so some, you know, some things at work, that's not ideal. That's the Columbia paper. Yeah. And I think that what's really, I mean, they showed that neutralizing antibodies are, significantly ineffective against Omicron. But the other thing I find sort of more scary, I'm pretty sure it was that paper, said that monoclonal antibodies that we use as therapy aren't as effective as well, too. So we really sort of need to, you know, one, do we need new monoclonal antibodies to be made? Um, So it's kind of like we need an upgrade here. The system needs an upgrade so that if somebody who is high risk gets sick, we can treat them. You know, I mean, the biggest mistake we made early on was, again, we sat and we waited for vaccines. We should have been hammering the therapeutics uh, the first year of this pandemic, uh, and we didn't. Uh, we defeated some, you know, we pushed some aside, we, we you know, trashed some of them. And so, you know, I, I, in being in clinical care, to me, it was kind of shocking. Okay, we're just going to send everybody home from the ER and tell them to take care of themselves, but there's no treatment for them. So finally, when monoclonal antibodies came, at least we had a potential option to send somebody who was feeling sick and high risk in for monoclonal antibodies. Now we need to upgrade the entire system. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with a different virus. That's what really gets my goat is the politicalization of some of these therapies you know, if Trump hadn't mentioned hydroxychloroquine, would it have been so villainized? Who knows? But I feel like the whole thing it just turned into such a mess and people have died unnecessarily. I've always been of the thought process of, is it going to hurt them? No, then let's try it. 
right? Like clinically, when I've got a patient and they ask, well, hey, can we try this? And I say, if I I don't see any reason why not, I'm not sure it's going to work, but it certainly isn't going to hurt you. Let's give it a try. And for the, you know, ivermectin, for instance, it doesn't, it, it does not have a lot of bad interactions with other drugs, surprisingly. Mm. Hydroxychloroquine does. Hydroxychloroquine actually will have an adverse uh, potentially interaction with uh, metformin, which is commonly given Mm. out as, right, as a diabetic drug. But ivermectin is so darn safe in that regard and just could be such a nice tool whether or not it, it it doesn't have to be this miracle worker. And for God's sakes, let's stop treating people when they're on their deathbed in the hospital. Like, let's start treating people early on when they're at home. With If, if everybody had been subsidized some vitamin D and some ivermectin and some hydroxychloroquine at the yeah. onset of this, we would be seeing a much different picture, which I know there's probably a lot of reasons behind that that have to do with the vaccine and politics. But that's been the very frustrating part for me. So now we're sitting here with a vaccine that isn't going to help against this variant much, monoclonal antibodies that aren't going to help against this variant much, and what are people to do? And they're being well, withheld. it looks like it's weaker. That's one yeah. That's one sort of silver lining yes. is that it looks like it's weaker. Uh, well, you know, we have, uh, what is it called, Paxlovid, um, the $500 five-day treatment from Pfizer. Uh, that is a, it's basically an old HIV drug, an old HIV protease inhibitor that was brought up and combined then with another HIV drug. Um, so, you know, it's sort of another repurposed drug, but it's got the star of approval as a repurposed drug. So, you know, the interesting thing is I have a neighbor um, who works for Pfizer, and she told me a year ago they were working on that. So how, why did it take so long? Yeah, there's a lot of questions. Yeah, and there's the, more questions than answers. The Merck drug, I can't think of the name right now, though it's, it starts with an M. Uh, the Molon Pervir or something, I don't know. It's a weird drug. Yeah, weird name. I, yeah. I read a concerning study showing, so its mechanism of action is to cause the virus to mutate so much that it can't basically survive it. So it's it, it does. Yeah. It induces mutation. And then the study was saying, if we don't dose it high enough based on body weight, and if people don't aren't compliant with dosing regularly at home, and if they don't take it for long enough, what could that potentially do to create more virulent variants? Yeah, hopefully not. Right. And I was like, good Lord, this is our solution. <laughs> this is the yeah. best we got. <laughs> I mean, we, we sort of did the same thing with remdesivir. I remember I wrote a I wrote a little report up on remdesivir way back when for the American College of Surgeons, and I called it the tale of two studies, where you know one study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, supported by the NIH, said remdesivir was great and it had a shortened hospitalization. <clears throat> and then the WHO came out with their multinational study that said this thing doesn't do anything. And I'm like, okay, so who do we believe here? Um, and, you know, we're spending thousands, what was it, $3,000 per dose of remdesivir uh. or something ridiculous like that. And, 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 you know, it was the last ditch effort and the patients would die. So I think that, you know, we, we, we haven't kept an open mind. And that's, I think, what bothers me the most is, you know, real true, hate to use the term science, but science and research is, you have a hypothesis, but you have to be open to the possibility that you're not going to get the answer you're looking for, but you might get a surprise answer. 
And you have to be willing to go there with it. We haven't done that. Um, there's, it's as though there's been this you know, predetermined res- result that we want. Uh, and it's very, very disappointing. It's really disappointing. You know, initially I thought, oh, it's all happening because Trump is president. But we're continuing some of the stupidity. You know, you know, horsey wormer. Why are we using this term horsey wormer? <laughs> oh, you because know? Joe Rogan took it. So it has to be for lug, yeah, a it, lug head. It's a lug head therapy, right? It, 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 it's just a derogatory term. Yeah. You know, it's just like calling people COVIDians and COVIDiots. Yeah. And so we've attached all these different negative terms to things uh, so that those who are progressive and who have taken the vaccines uh, can say, well, we're smart and we're Democrats and you dumb shits in the red states are, you know, Republican idiots or whatever. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And I'm walking the middle of the road here because I want to see the data. Uh, and so I think that we need to let go of all those terms. It, mm-hmm. it, really, it really disturbs me. That's, that's what I lose, lose sleep over at night is the vitriol. Um, as opposed to the studies. The studies I can deal with, I'll read them, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to highlight that, that's cool, sticky note this. <laughs> um, but the vitriol is is something that disturbs me. It's people imposing their, their what works for them on everyone else. Mm-hmm. No, if it works for you, do it. I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to make fun of somebody who walks down the street with a mask on. If they're comfortable wearing that mask, so be it. But don't give me any crap about choosing not to boost or choosing not to vaccinate or choosing not to wear a mask, you know, outdoors or whatever. You know, we need to set people where they are. Right. And we need good leadership. I think in all ways, I'm in Oregon where leadership is the whole West Coast is just I have no idea who's advising these governors that are making these emergency uh, mandates. But just a a clear lack of leadership and a clear lack of taking responsibility when something isn't working. It's it it, all the way up to the, you know, current administration. I'm just, and then like the, the fed, the feds this week, they're like, well, we don't really have a plan. (laughs) We're just gonna, well, there's no, there's no plan except the plan is that, that Biden wants to succeed against the virus yeah. And he's not going to. No, because it's a uh, virus. But that was his, you know, that's what he ran on. He ran on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get control of the virus. Um, the reason why um, Newsom is behaving the way he is, is he's, he, he's planning on running for president. So he wants to be able to get up there during a debate and say, hey, I protected my state. You know, we had low this and we vaccinated the shit out of everybody. And I, you know, mandates and this and that. And, and you know, that there's a huge political element mm-hmm. to it. Again, who is advising them with the science and and some of the talking heads that represent public health? I'm not so sure are public true public health people. Um, you know, we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, vaccinating people with the same legacy vaccine over and over and over again. That's the definition of insanity. At some point, we have to stop and look at. What's happening here? I agree. I agree, Eileen. I I have so enjoyed talking with you. I I appreciate your candor and I appreciate your diplomacy and all of this throughout this whole thing. You've been 
you've been a really calm sense of light for me. And I that's why I go to your Instagram because it calms me down and I don't feel so crazy. So now that we've, I said that up front and now that everybody's heard this discussion, hopefully they understand why. Um, where can people find you? So your Substack, I have not dove in because I know it's going to be like a rabbit hole that I'm not going to come out of for a while. So you're on Substack and they just find you by your name, Eileen Natuzzi? Yeah, you can just search me by my name. Uh, the nice thing about Substack is you can actually see who I follow on Substack. So you can amplify who you're following and who you're listening to. And I actually listen to a kind of a wide variety of people um, that, you know, some are very uh, pro, some are pro vaccine, public mm-hmm. health people, and some are anti vaccine. And it's kind of like the beauty of Substack is it's people's voices. Uh, it's not just this homogenized information. So I've actually really been enjoying it. I'd probably say the bulk of the emails that come in to my account now are Substack, you know, post notifications. So yeah, they can find me by my name, Eileen Natuzzi on Substack. And your Instagram is Eileen. Um, Eileen did. DLD. I think it's D- Eileen DLD. DLD. Okay. DLD stands for Dumb Little Doctor. It was a nickname <laughs> I was given a long time ago. So, Well, you are far from a dumb little doctor. Well, this has been such a treat. Thank you for coming on and spending the time with me. And I'm f- glad we finally got to connect and meet and at least virtually. Uh, yeah, sure. And, sure. and thank Hopefully you. Hopefully in person someday. Yes, for sure. Well, where, you're, you're West Coast, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in San Diego. Oh, okay. Awesome. I love San Diego. I will I will visit yeah. you next time I'm down there. Yeah, actually, we're pretty, we're, compared to our more northern um, L.A., uh, we're pretty mellow down here. We don't have vaccine mandates for restaurants. Um, yeah, we follow the state mask rule and whatnot, but a lot of people don't pay attention to that. Um, so we're, we're pretty mellow. Uh, and I have friends that come down from L.A. and they're like, wow. Can we actually sit in the, can we actually go to this restaurant and we're not vaccinated? Like, yeah, sure. That's great. Yeah, you've got a great freedom fighting community down there too. A lot of great doctors are are stepping up and at least pushing back more than I'm seeing in other places on the West Coast. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Natuzzi. It's been an honor. I hope everybody will go follow you on Substack and read your musings because they are brilliant. And we will uh maybe we should have you back and you can talk about how to dissect a study appropriately once you've got that sorted out (laughs) i'll probably do a sub stack on it before then so and i write for another friend's blog periodically so at some point i'll put it together great awesome i look forward to it all right all right bye-bye thanks for listening to the dr tina show Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. 
The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 